Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. This is going to be a relatively unique episode. I'm going to be giving something of like a rough draft and an extended cut of a presentation that I'm going to be giving in a couple weeks at the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference. Uh, that conference is coming up. It is Thursday, October 19th through the 21st. It is not too late to sign up. So I urge you to sign up and definitely um, do not use this video as an excuse not to go. Uh, I'm going to be practicing my presentation, although my, I know that my um, presentation that I'm going to give today is probably much longer than what I'll give at the conference, because at the conference, there's a 45 minute time limit. But this conference, or, or, sorry, this video is basically my interpretation and understanding and explanation of the prologue of John from a biblical Unitarian point of view. So um, please do leave comments on your thoughts and reactions to this. And um, if you have some good thoughts or edits or corrections or something like that, who knows, it can still make it into my presentation. Um, and if you're going to the conference and you want my presentation to be a surprise, don't listen to this video for the next couple of weeks. But I'm also expecting this video to have a longer shelf life. I get asked about the prologue of John quite frequently for obvious reasons. Um, and so I, this is sort of something that I wanted to um, share with my larger YouTube audience as well. Um, so without further ado, I'll start my presentation. So I'm calling this the prologue of John, the unveiling of the double narrative. And I'll explain what that is in a little bit in a second, except this conference is in 2023, not 2024. So I think that everybody, by everybody, I mean all Christians, understand that the prologue of John is something special. It is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible for understanding the relationship between God and Jesus and who exactly Jesus is. And it has been the source of wonderful Christian interpretation, theology, and exegesis for 2,000 years. And it's also been the source of contention, confusion, multiple interpretations, everything like that for the last 2,000 years as well. And if you read commentaries or if you read scholarly works on John or the prologue of John, you can get a lot of different interpretations. And at the expense of adding a new one to that list, I hope to maybe clarify some things. I hope to synthesize some things. I'm, I'm bringing a lot of different influences together in my interpretation of this, and I'll teach what some of those influences are and where they came from. Um, but I think that the prologue of John is simply beautiful. I believe it's the inspired word of God, and I think that it is extremely elevated and unique among passages in the New Testament to invite deeper reflection and um, understanding and spiritual growth. So uh, a little bit of background. Um, as a biblical Unitarian, there are sort of two general Unitarian approaches to the prologue. There's what I'll call the old beginning approach. The old beginning approach would say that the gospel starts with the same old beginning that Genesis 1 does. So in the beginning is the same beginning that Genesis 1 starts with and that the Logos is an attribute or a power of God that's sort of poetically personified in the prologue. The primary focus of the prologue is the Old Testament times and event, and therefore the prologue is something like a background or introduction to things leading up to Jesus. 
Um, the word became flesh then transitions the logos from being a disembodied divine attribute into now focusing on the person of Jesus. Um, but there's also, a, well, I should say the old beginning approach has a lot of supporters nowadays. Um, maybe Dale Tuggy, um, Dustin Smith are prominent common day or uh, present day supporters of this interpretation. Um, Andrew Norton, who was a famous biblical Unitarian at Harvard in the early 1800s, he also interpreted things this way. Um, but there's also a second tradition within biblical Unitarianism that sees the gospel starting with a new beginning, where in the beginning references the beginning of Jesus's ministry, not the Old Testament beginning of the world. And the Logos is like a title or a synonym for the human being Jesus throughout the prologue. And the primary focus is in, to introduce the events of the gospel, not the events that led up to the gospel, but to summarize the th contents of the gospel of John. And the word became flesh as more of a summary statement then, rather than a transition. And this uh, interpretation is actually relatively old among Unitarians. Um, there, uh, the Polish Socinians interpreted it this way. You can see that in the Rakovian Catechism from the 1600s in Poland. And I think that there is some evidence also that some of the anti-Nicene biblical Unitarians interpreted this way, although it's a little bit harder to tell. Um, and then this uh, form of interpretation also has modern day supporters like Bill Schlegel and others. Um, so I am going to be proposing something that's a little bit different, although if anything, it's mo more similar to the new beginning than the old beginning method. But before I get into the prologue, I'm, so I'm gonna give some uh, some ideas uh, that I think are, and tools that are helpful for understanding the prologue. So I'm going to talk about uh, typology first. And to talk about typology, as, uh, specifically Christian typology, I'm going to talk about Melito of Sardis. Melito of Sardis was a bishop of Sardis in Asia. He died in about 180 AD. He was a Jewish convert to Christianity he wrote a famous work called On Pascha or On Passover, or it should be really translated on Easter. Um, and this dates to around 160 or 170 AD. Uh, Sardis is one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. It's in Asia Minor and modern day Western Turkey. And many people believe the Gospel of John to be written in Ephesus or near to Ephesus. And so his location and his temporal proximity makes him especially interesting to try and understand the context in which the gospel was written. Although I will say that Melito Sardis would have probably interpreted the prologue differently than I'm suggesting. He was a Logos incarnation theologian. I'll explain a little bit about what that means later. Um, but here's a quote from On Pascha Cern in paragraph 35. Nothing, beloved, is spoken or made without an analogy and a sketch so that whatever is made may be perceived through the prototype and whatever is spoken clarified by the illustration. So basically when you're making something, you draw a sketch of what you're gonna make before you build it. You make a blueprint of a house before you build the house. In the case of a first draft, it is not a finished work, but exists so that through the model, that which is to be can be seen. A preliminary sketch is made from wax or from clay or from wood, so that what will come about, taller in height, greater in strength, and more attractive in shape, can be seen through the small provisional sketch. So basically, the, the purpose of a blueprint is to imagine the final thing before you build it. Just as with the provisional examples, so it is with eternal things. As it is with things on earth, so it is with things in heaven. 
For indeed, the Lord's salvation and his truth were prefigured in the people, and the decrees of the gospel were proclaimed in advance by the law. So just as the relationship is between a blueprint and a house, so is the relationship between the um, law or the Old Testament, you could say, or the books of Moses and the gospel. So you could kind of see Jesus's salvation prefigured sort of like a blueprint in the Old Testament through types and figures. Thus, the mystery of the Lord prefigured from of old through the vision of a type is today fulfilled and has found faith, even though people think it is something new. For the mystery of the Lord is both new and old, old with respect to the law, but new with respect to grace. But if you come to scrutinize the type through its outcome, you will discern him. So in other words, the Old Testament has these prefigurations and four types of Jesus within the Old Testament that then are more fully explained and fully revealed in the life of Jesus. Um, so I, I think that that, is, uh, the, that explanation by Melito is probably one of the clearest examples and explanations and detailed uh, theological structurings of how um, typology works in early Christianity. Um, another witness to this sort of idea is Justin Martyr. He lived from 100 AD to about 165 AD. He was born in Samaria. He was a Platonist philosopher who converted to Christianity around 130 AD. And he wrote a dialogue between him and some Jewish conversation partners written, I don't know, sometime in the 150s probably. And in that, Justin says, you know that what the prophets said and did, they veiled by parables and types, as you admitted to us, so that it was not easy for all to understand most of what they said, since they concealed the truth by these means, that those who are eager to find out and learn it might do so with much labor. Trifo's group, we admitted this. So I think that what's interesting about this is that um, Justin is saying that the Old Testament, through types and veiled parables, talks about things that will come later. And what's interesting is the Jewish group, Trifo's group, agrees to this. And there are multiple examples in the dialogue with Trifo where both Trifo the Jew and Justin the Christian are using typological reasoning to try and understand the Old Testament. Justin's trying to get them to believe in Jesus. The Trifos group is skeptical of his claims about Jesus, but they both agree about typology as a valid manner and method of exegesis. And so I think that both Melito Sardis and Justin Martyr witnessed to the fact that typology was a common and accepted uh, form of exegesis and understanding the Old Testament in the second century AD. Um, but someone might say, well, Sam, maybe Melito and Justin are sort of Hellenized, Platonized, early second century Christians, but that might be anachronistic to apply to the New Testament itself. Well, so here's a quote from Paul that I think demonstrates the very same idea that Melito and Justin were talking about. Tell me, you who desire to be under the, under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons one by a slave woman and one by a free. But the sons of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. 
for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So basically what Paul is doing here is he is allegorically interpreting the Old Testament in these in this case, the, the two women that Abraham has children through to be the two covenants. So in other words, that by seeing this sort of structural symbolic example of these two women, we can understand in a analogical or allegorical or typological fashion that there's going to be two covenants. One is associated with slavery. One is associated with freedom. One is associated with an earthly Jerusalem. The other is associated with the sort of heavenly Jerusalem. And so that's right there in the New Testament. And I think that's the exact same thing that Melito and Justin were saying. So I don't think that you can say that typology and allegorical reasoning is anachronistic to the New Testament context. Another passage in Paul that I think is very relevant and important is 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what Paul's talking about here is there is a meaning of the Old Testament that when Jews, even to this day, when they read it without Christ, there is this extra layer of meaning that they can't see because it's still veiled. But when we, through Christ, read the New Testament or read the Old Testament, that Christological layer of the Old Testament that had been latent but hidden is now unveiled and we see it. And it has a greater glory. So just as Moses's face shone with the glory of the old covenant, you could say, Jesus's face shines with an even greater glory in the New Testament, in the new covenant, and we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another to be like Jesus. Um, so some might say, okay, so you've got some early church fathers that talk about typology. And yeah, okay, so there's some typology in the Apostle Paul. What about John? And I'll just give a quick example. There are many examples, I think, but here's just a quick one. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3, 14. This is exactly typological reasoning, where the type of the snake on the bronze pole lifted up by Moses is like a foreshadow, a foretype, a, a, an analogy, a thing that helps us see into the future what would happen to Jesus. It wasn't obvious at the time, like no one looking at the bronze post with a snake on it thought, oh, the Messiah will be crucified on a cross. But once you've seen the Messiah crucified on a cross, then you can look back and see that foretype in the Old Testament. So that's right there in John itself. And Jesus is speaking that for the record. So I do think that typology is important for understanding the Gospel of John. All right, I'll make six points about how typology works in early Christianity, because I think it's more specific than just this thing seems like that thing. There's, there's something much more detailed and specific going on. The four type comes first, and the archetype comes second. 
The four type helps train the mind to understand the archetype so that when the archetype is revealed, it was like a, uh, a foreshadow or a prerequisite, like you take a prerequisite course in college, so then you can take the real course that you really do the real learning, but you can't do the real learning unless you've taken the prerequisite course. It's like the four type is the prerequisite course that gives you the tools to understand the actual course. The four type is from the old covenant and the archetype is in the new covenant. This is specific to how it works in Christianity. The four type is earthly or of dust and the archetype is heavenly or spiritual. And by heavenly or spiritual, I don't mean that it can't be on earth because the spiritual or the heavenly thing can be in Jesus on earth, but it's like its origin or its source of credibility is from heaven, whereas the four type is of earth and dust. And um, similar to point four, point five, the four type is temporary. It doesn't last forever. The archetype, however, does last forever and it is eternal. And even though it can be materially embodied, it is eternally lasting. And for the same reason, the four type has a glory, but it gets overshadowed and replaced by the glory of the archetype. So like once you're done with the blueprint, once you build the house, you don't need the blueprint anymore. You just have the house. And that's sort of the way that um, typology is structured and works in early Christianity. Um, a couple other passages that I think just kind of hit home this same point to help sort of reinforce what I'm saying. So this is from Matthew 13, 52. And right, some people have heard like, don't think this type of thing is in the synoptic gospels. I'm like, I disagree with that. I think this very same idea is in the synoptic gospels too. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is old and or what is new and what is old. So Jesus is saying that scribes in the kingdom of heaven, and a scribe is someone who interprets the law, they bring out of it old things and new things. I think that that's that double structure that I'm talking about. Um, and then similarly, on the road to Emmaus, this is in the Gospel of Luke, again, another example from the synoptics. And he said to them, O foolish one, ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And this is exactly what I think is going on, is that these disciples had read the Old Testament and the prophets before, but Jesus is opening them up. He's unveiling them with a new meaning that points to himself and about his suffering and his glory that had been there the whole time, but had been hard to see. I think this is like a real life in action example of Jesus doing that sort of new Christological allegorical exegesis that explains the spiritual layer, even though the earthly layer had been there the whole time. Um, and say one more passage that I think hammers home this idea. This is again in the Gospel of John itself. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed. In the Gospel of John, all of the miracles are actually more like signs, not just miracles, and that they are they have a purpose of not just demonstrating heavenly power, but communicating something important. 
And I think what's being communicated by the first miracle of turning water into wine is that the good thing comes second. Uh, people are used to the good thing first and the second thing being not quite as good like wine at a party. But Jesus surprises the host of the wedding party by giving the good thing second. And just as the grape, uh, just as the wine that came first was literally of the earth and that it grew on grapes and fermented and was put in wine glasses. And then the second wine is this miraculous wine that's of heaven or spiritual wine, you could say, that Jesus miraculously manifests. That this is, I think, a good metaphor, a good symbol of how this form of exegesis and typology works in Christianity. And Jesus is miraculously demonstrating this, um, this uh, I don't know, principle, I guess you could say, in his first miracle. All right, so another thing I want to talk about in the Gospel of John that I think one of the central things to understanding the Gospel of John is understanding the theme of misunderstanding. Basically, the theme of misunderstanding goes like this. There's some story in the Gospel of John. Jesus will start out making a statement, often using figurative language to talk about spiritual realities. So he's talking about that upper register. But the audience takes him literally or too concretely and talks at the earthly register and misunderstands what he's saying. Jesus tries to clarify or double down, often reiterating the spiritual layer. And the audience gets more confused or even angry or violent. And there are so many instances, like you can look at papers on this subject, there are so many instances of this theme of misunderstanding the Gospel of John, it like takes up a majority of the body of the Gospel. So here's like a kind of a short, simple example of the theme of misunderstanding the Gospel of John. This is from John 2. Uh, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so I think the, the blue text that I'm showing here, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up, that is the Jesus speaking at a spiritual, allegorical, typological layer where he's comparing himself to the temple. And then the Jewish audience here misunderstands him by taking him literally. And they're like, how can you build a temple in three days? It took 46 years to build this temple. But Jesus isn't talking about the physical, literal temple that's right in front of them. He's talking about the spiritual temple, which is Jesus's own body. And this is another very common thing in a lot of the themes of misunderstanding is Jesus is taking something from the old covenant, in this case, the temple, but there are times where he'll do it with, say, Jacob or Abraham or the scriptures or manna from heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where Jesus takes some sort of symbol or um, type, foretype from the Old Testament and applies it to himself in this allegorical archetypal way. And the audience misunderstands that that's what he's doing. And that leads to confusion, conflict, misunderstanding, et cetera. Um, so I think that this is like a really simple explanation of this point. And uh, that last sentence, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. One nice thing about the Gospel of John is that the author of the Gospel will often clarify something. When there was a misunderstanding, he'll make sure his audience is keeping up. And I'll show a couple instances of that same thing in the prologue of John, where he speaks at the spiritual way, but then he clarifies what he means to make sure his audience isn't falling behind. Um, so here's like another really good example of the theme of misunderstanding in the Gospel of John. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So again, you see this structure. Jesus makes a statement, often using figurative language about spiritual realities. The audience takes them literally, like Nicodemus thinking, how can you go into your mother's womb a second time, right? That's taking the statement too literally. Jesus doubles down. Uh, he's trying to clarify, he's speaking at that spiritual register again, but the audience gets more confused or even angry in some other instances. And what I think Jesus is showing here is like we have the earthly example of normal birth, and that is a metaphor for the spiritual reality of birth from above, right? When Jesus says you must be born again, an important thing to know is that the Greek word for again can also mean from above, just as in English, some words just have two meanings sometimes. And I think that's very intentional in this passage because John often uses words that have a double meaning where one meaning is misleading and one meaning is revealing. And people often will pick the wrong meaning of a word. John uses that idea multiple times. And so the Nicodemus picks onto the meaning again, which is a literal and obviously false meaning of what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying you must be born from above. So there's the second kind of birth. There's an earthly physical kind of birth that happens in your mother. There's a spiritual kind of birth that happens through the Holy Spirit from above, from God, from heaven. And that's what Jesus is trying to talk about. And that's what Nicodemus is not understanding. And then Jesus says this, which is like, if I had to summarize the point that I'm trying to make about how the Gospel of John works, this sentence is the most important sentence. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus here reveals the two layers of which he normally converses. He can talk about heavenly things and earthly things, but he can't even talk about earthly things in Nicodemus because Nicodemus isn't keeping up. And if he can't talk about earthly things with Nicodemus, how in the world can he get him to understand the upper register of heavenly things? So I think that that sentence right there really explodes what's going on in a lot of the Gospel of John. All right. So... Um, this is one thing that I get to do in this YouTube video that would be harder to do in person at the presentation. I'm going to play a clip from Father John Bear. Father John Bear is an Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian. I would even say he's probably one of the most influential Eastern Orthodox theologians or theologians really of any stripe that's alive right now. Um, and I have really enjoyed multiple of his books. He does excellent work on the Church Fathers, and he has a really, really good book on the Gospel of John that I am, some, there are some times when I'm reading his book, I'm like, man, it's weird how similar he can be to biblical Unitarianism. It's like the heretical of the heretical and the orthodox of the orthodox, like in some weird sort of horseshoe effect, come really close to being similar to each other. Uh, so I'm going to play a clip from my interview with uh, Father John Bear. Uh, let me make sure the volume is good. Okay, here we go. 
Uh, let me make sure that I, yep, okay, here we go. Could it make that? Mm. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to use the word apocalyptic, mm. okay, just to describe it. And for, for the listeners, what I really mean by apocalyptic is not a Hollywood apocalyptic end of the world drama, this and the other, but, but mm. simply unveiling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually beginning to think ever more that the, the idea of unveiling apocalyptic is really at the heart of all theology. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we just take the example the scriptural interpretation. Okay. Mm -hmm. the, the clearest example would be the Apostle Paul. He read scripture one way as, you know, a good rabbinic Jew trained under Rabbi Gamaliel and all the rest of it. And his reading it that way led him to persecute the Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, yeah. just no doubt about it. It didn't lead him to expect a crucified Messiah born of a virgin. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. it really didn't. You know, those who were thinking that way, they've got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he then encounters Christ and now he reads it differently. Right. Okay. Right. And then right. he describes it in terms of the veil being lifted. Right. Okay. So there you've got um, the unveiling and you're reading it now in the light of the encounter with Christ and so on. But the unveiling also goes for, for Christ himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While they were following him, while the disciples were following him around, they really didn't know who he was. Yeah. You know, yeah. what kind of man is it that can, um, you know, calm the waters and this, that and the other? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Even when you get to the Gospel of John at the beginning, where you've got Philip telling Nathaniel, we found the one of whom Moses spoke in the law and the prophets also. You know, mm -hmm. you, you think Gospel of John, the highest level. The scriptures aren't open in synoptics until the end of the synoptics, Road to Emmaus and so on, and that's when they get it. Gospel of John, it starts off in the beginning. We found the one of whom Moses in the law speaks and the prophets also, but then it carries on, Jesus, the son of Nazareth, uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. but that's not quite who he is. So it's still working that way. After the Passion, as the scriptures are unveiled, we now know who he actually is. He's the eternal word of God. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So there's an unveiling of, in Christology. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. Um, but this unveiling is now also an unveiling of ourselves. So Paul and I'll pause it there. Um, I would recommend listening to that whole conversation I had with Father John Bear. I'll include a link in the show notes for that. But I think that he's just talking about that thing that I've been trying to articulate, that there is this truth hidden, latent within the Old Testament, even latent within Jesus, that it's hard to see. But once you are illuminated and unveiled through the Holy Spirit, then you begin to see and understand the true spiritual heavenly truth of what's going on in Jesus. And so I think that um, his book is, is strangely similar to a lot of what I want to say. And I, I should also say I was very influenced by his book, too. I'm going to play a second clip of my conversation with Father John Bear that is more about the prologue of John. One second. All right. 45, 48. Yeah, here we go. So you've got word of God in the pro in, in the prologue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote a book trying to argue that in, the way the earliest readers do it is that the term logos, logos, word in the prologue is already a reference to Jesus Christ. It's not. Right. They become I, it's Jesus. not a, a pre-incarnate something. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, then the most glaring, the only, only of the Places in Revelation, whatever chapter it is, where the rider on the white horse with the robe dipped in blood is known by a name, and the name is Word of God. It's a title attributed to him. Right. And origins.
All right. So the word of God is a title attributed to Jesus, and that the prologue of John is actually about the human being Jesus of Nazareth the whole time. And honestly, I had never heard anyone but a biblical Unitarian before I read this book from Father John Bear argue that the prologue of John is actually about the human being Jesus most or all of the time. Most of the time people are like, it's a pre-incarnate something who then becomes an incarnate something, as opposed to it being about the flesh and blood Jesus the whole time. So um, a, a lot of what I am working on and influenced by and inspired by in this interpretation is from Father John Bear, even though I'm sure that there would be things that he wouldn't agree with me. I'm not saying he is a biblical Unitarian. Obviously, he's a or an Eastern Orthodox priest, but we can get strangely close on agreeing about a lot of things. And I thought that that was very interesting. So basically, to give, I'm going to transition now to talking about the prologue itself. I feel like I've built up this idea of the theme of misunderstanding, of there being two layers of what's going on, of there being this typological relationship between the true meaning of the events of Jesus and the events of the Old Testament. And so what I'm going to argue is that the prologue is telling two stories at one time. At a lower level, it's telling the story of the Logos in the Old Testament. But at a higher level, it's telling the story of the Logos in the life of Jesus. And these stories are connected through a typological relationship, a typological re reasoning. And that the reason why the prologue can be confusing, are we talking about the Old Testament, are we talking about Jesus, is that it's actually doing both at the same time. It's both telling the story of the Old Testament and telling the story of Jesus in the gospel simultaneously for the point of showing this revelatory new meaning of the Old Testament in the life of Jesus. And also there is a huge theological point and argument that we can believe that the Logos was at work in Jesus because we see the same things that the Logos in the Old Testament is what the Logos does in Jesus in the New Testament in the gospel. And that that, I think, is the key to understanding what's going on in the prologue. And so now I'm going to go detailed verse by verse and sometimes word by word to try and make this point in more detail. All right. So here you have the whole prologue. You can see it all there. And now I'm going to zoom in and do passage by passage to explain what's going on. So John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. So basically what I am saying is that the beginning has two meanings, that we are intentionally referencing Genesis. Yes, in the beginning sounds like Genesis 1-1 for a reason, that we're starting in the same sort of way, but at the earthly level, we're referencing that, but at the spiritual level, we're referencing a new beginning, that is the beginning of the ministry and life of Jesus Christ in the physical world in about 30 AD when Jesus comes onto the scene to start to do his real ministry work. That there are two beginnings, an earthly beginning reference in the Old Testament, a new spiritual heavenly beginning through Jesus. And um, so let's see here. Let's talk about the word beginning to try and back that up. Uh, let's start at the very beginning, a good place to start. So the word beginning is the Greek word arche or arche. Um, it has a bunch of different meanings. It can mean beginning, but it can also mean like source or power 
or principle or fundamental. And in fact, in Origen's uh, explanation of the Gospel of John, he goes through like something like seven or eight different Greek definitions of the word beginning, and he's a native Greek speaker. And uh, I actually have this quote from, from Maria in The Sound of Music intentionally, because in, in English, we almost always use the word beginning to talk about temporal sequence or something like that. But sometimes we can use the word beginning in a slightly more rich sense. Like when Maria is saying, let's start at the very beginning, and then she does do, re, mi, it's not like do, re, mi are the first in the sequence of music. It's like they're the underlying fundamental principles that are the beginning or like the source or the, the power or something of music itself. So she's going down to like the fundamental layer to explain what music is. And I actually think that the word beginning um, sometimes doesn't do the word archi justice when we're interpreting uh, this word. Um, so for people who might say, Sam, this is outrageous. How in the world could we be expected to believe that in the beginning at the in John 1, 1 doesn't refer to Genesis? Or well, what I'm saying, it does refer to Genesis, but it actually has a more truer meaning in the life of Jesus. If you look at the way the word beginning is used in the Gospel of John, you might begin to see part of my point. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. What beginning does that mean? From the beginning of the events of the Gospel. Okay, that was John 6, 64, John 8, 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. What does the beginning mean there? It means the beginning of Jesus's ministry and being on the scene and talking to the Jews and so on. All right, John 15, 27. You and, also, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. He's talking to his disciples. They've been with him from the beginning. From the beginning of Genesis 1, 1? No, from the beginning of Jesus going on the scene, right? In John chapter 1, Jesus meets some of his disciples. That's the beginning. The beginning is the ministry of Jesus. Okay, if you are still a little skeptical of this, when you read Mark 1, 1, when is it talking about? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it goes on to describe the baptism of Jesus right away. So what beginning is the gospel of Mark beginning with? Obviously, it's the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So almost everyone acknowledges that. So uh, why is it so hard to acknowledge that the gospel of John might beginning, be beginning at the same time that Mark is beginning? And it's not just Mark. Here's Luke, the very first two verses of the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So again, two of the other Gospels start with a beginning that is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus that people were witness to. So my argument is that John is just starting in the same beginning as those other two at its spiritual layer, but it is intentionally referencing the Old Testament beginning in a typological fashion. Okay, logos. What is going on with the word logos? If it's just talking about Jesus, then why doesn't it just say in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God? Um, well, I think it's using logos for a very particular reason. Um, so I another book that I think was really influential on me and my understanding of the prologue of John, I would say, is uh, this book by Charles Engberg Peterson, John and Philosophy, a new reading of the fourth gospel. And I had a interview with um, uh, Dr. Charles Engberg Peterson, and I'll play a little bit of that. 
I was struck by the fact that it may be that um, John is in fact using Logos and the pneuma that uh, uh, Jesus uh, precisely receives from above uh, just after the prologue, uh, he may be using those two terms uh, in a quasi-stoic way uh, as as two sides of the same uh, two sides of the same coin. Um, what this means is that uh, the logos and I would say the pneuma was with God to begin with, because that those things are part of, of uh, God's creation, or, or those that that generates the creation. They were with God to begin with. Um, Jesus wasn't. Jesus was was born by Mary, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then, at a certain point, uh, he came to John the Baptist, etc. And John the Baptist then bears witness. He doesn't actually baptize Jesus, and, and people emphasize that very much. But but surely that's because uh, it's God who baptizes uh, Jesus, and God baptizes Jesus by sending the pneuma from above, and that means that He sends into Jesus's body, um, an energy, a power, one might even say, and we can talk about how that power is shown in the rest of the gospel, uh, and also a knowledge, the logos, uh, the cognitive side of it. So Jesus both, uh, he, he has God's power, but he also knows what God's power is all about. And he knows that he himself has, has as it were, been appointed uh, to carry that uh, power out among human beings. Uh, and when, when I had this idea, uh, I, I noticed, which I hadn't done before, that in fact, uh, John the Baptist plays um, a double role uh, both in the prologue and also in that uh, later passage. Uh, he he uh, um, he, he appears twice in the prologue, uh, and then he uh, gets a bigger role in, in from 119 uh, following. But if you look carefully at the way um, John describes him in 119 following, you will see that the first half of that corresponds to uh, John the Baptist's first appearance in the prologue, and the second part of it corresponds to uh, uh, John's appearance in the second uh, part of the prologue. And that means, you see, that uh, when we come across uh, in uh, 119... I'll pause it there. Again, I would highly encourage uh, listening to the rest of that video, as well as reading this book, John and Philosophy. So basically, to summarize what uh, Doctors en Dr. Engberg-Peterson is arguing, is that a more stoic understanding of the Logos is more contextually appropriate to the Gospel of John than a Platonic one, a Platonic Logos is sort of like up in heaven and it's abstract truth. In Stoic philosophy, the Logos is like this active particle principle that is eminent within the universe. And it's almost like this invisible thing that when you speak, like Numa and Logos, sort of like Dr. Engberg-Peterson said, are two sides of the same coin. When you speak, there's both breath or spirit, like uh, pneuma means both breath and spirit in Greek, that like literal breath comes out of you. 
and there's power that like, you know, you're blowing something, you can blow something with your breath, but there's also words to it at the same time. So there's this double aspect of pneuma and logos where it has information and understanding, but also active power. In the same way, the pneuma, the logos, is like this invisible thing that grants those who have it in them understanding and spiritual power simultaneously as two sides of the same coin. And that Jesus is the special person in whom the pneuma logos takes up residence without measure at Jesus's baptism. And so I think that this is really a better understanding of logos than a lot of people tend to have of it being this sort of second hypothesis of the Godhead that only really becomes incarnate at the incarnation, as opposed to it being something that was active in the Old Testament and active in the New Testament, but active in the New Testament within Jesus in this new special relationship way that was similar to how it had been active in the Old Testament, but also different and kind and of a higher register particularized in Jesus. And so I think that I'll read some Old Testament passages, an Old Testament passage that sort of helps. It's like, okay, so Stoic understanding, what does Stoic understanding have to do with Isaiah? And I think you can see a pretty similar idea of what the Logos is in Isaiah as to what Trolls is arguing is a more um, uh, Stoic understanding of the Logos in Greek philosophy. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So just as rain and snow comes down from heaven and does and accomplishes something, so the word of God invisibly but actively does something in the world. It's a power, it's an activity that is having effect. It's not just an abstract truth. And I think that that sort of passage would have been really influential for why John is using this word logos, is that it's, it connects God's activity in the Old Testament with God's activity in Jesus. And another thing, I feel like I've read so many commentaries on the Gospel of John, and when they talk about logos in the prologue, they ha they almost never look at the way the word logos is used in the rest of the Gospel of John. It's like it means something new and unique in the prologue, but it means something completely different in the rest of the Gospel. And I would argue maybe one of the ways to better understand what logos means in the prologue is to look at what logos means in the rest of the gospel. That just seems like completely obvious to me, but I don't. I, I wonder why so few people go down that road to try and better understand the prologue. So here I think are some helpful quotes that use the word logos in the gospel of John. So this is John 5, 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, and you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Right? So, so the Logos is this thing that can abide within you. And you notice Jesus talks about the scriptures. The scriptures are in some sense the word of God, but the logos is more than just words in a book. It is something that can be inside you that you can receive. Like when you hear the logos, like capital T, capital L, come out of Jesus through his spirit breath, 
it can like enter into you if you receive it and believe, and it can abide within you if you trust in Jesus and trust that Jesus was sent by God and empowered by God. And if you believe that the Logos is within Jesus, then the Logos can come into you as well. So I think that's helpful to understand what's going on. Here's another passage in John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So in some sense, the Logos is Jesus's because Jesus is speaking it. But in the ultimate sense, the Logos doesn't belong to Jesus intrinsically. It is his father's Logos that the father gave to Jesus. And that when Jesus speaks and you believe and you keep his word, the father and Jesus dwell within you because you have the Logos within you. Right, the logos is in the Father's logos is in Jesus, and then when you receive the logos from Jesus, Jesus is in you, and the Father is in you, in Jesus, and the logos in you, or in the Spirit, because the logos and the Spirit are like two sides of the same idea. I think that's a really helpful passage for understanding what the logos is and how the logos works in the Gospel of John. Um, so there's a question that I could imagine people having in their heads. So. Are you saying then that the Logos is the pre-incarnate Jesus or is the Logos not the pre-incarnate Jesus? And I think in early Christianity, right, I gave a, a talk um, in my video to Gavin Ortland. I talked about two different ways of understanding the relationship of the Logos to Jesus in early Christianity. There's Logos incarnation theology, which I would, which I will readily grant that Melito Sardis and Justin Martyr, who I quoted earlier in this presentation, they held to. And again, you know, they're pretty close in time and bear witness that maybe this was the theology that um, the Gospel of John and the authors and the audience of the Gospel of John believed. And that sort of Logos incarnation theology is that there's one God, the Father, who's absolutely transcendent and invisible up above the heavens and that he begets a logos at the beginning of time. This logos is like a second God, and yes, they do use that phrase, and that there's this second God who's like this eminent God who does the will of the big God, and that this second God character is the person who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the person who wrestled with Jacob, like all of those theophanies where someone is sort of interacting with a visible, tangible God in the Old Testament, that's the pre-incarnate Jesus son logos, and then in in the New uh, Testament, the only difference is that this um, logo son becomes flesh and is a human being who you can touch as opposed to being an angel in the Old Testament. And, but there's this continuity of personal identity where the logos was a person in the Old Testament and now that same person is a human being in the New Testament. That was one way of making sense of this. But there's also the dynamic monarchian position, which in that same video I referenced, I argue is probably, I think, can make a better argument for being the original theology of the New Testament and the apostles, where God the Father is one person. The Logos isn't this secondary subordinate begotten God character. It is this power or energy that comes out from the Father. And in the Old Testament, it works through the Holy Spirit. It works through prophets and angels and through miracles. And that it is not a 
separate person. It is a manifestation of God the Father's power and energy in the Old Testament. And in Jesus, in the New Testament, this Logos power takes up special residence within Jesus. But it would be not correct to say that the Logos in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Jesus. It was just the same Logos power working in a slightly different way. And so then the question is, okay, well, is there anything within the New Testament or within the Gospel of John that can help us decide between these two paradigms of understanding how the Logos is related to Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And I think that one clear passage that's really helpful is Hebrews 8, 4 through 7. So now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who are offering gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. First of all, I'll say this passage does an excellent job of illuminating that typology thing that I was explaining in the first half of this presentation, right? There is this priestly service on earth that is super succeeded in glory by the priestly service in heaven of Jesus once he has ascended into heaven, right? The the tent, uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament is like a foretype that then is given way to this earth heavenly type of the real temple in heaven. So that sort of relationship between an earthly thing and a heavenly thing, you can see that in this passage. And right, the first thing is good, but it isn't perfect. And it's overshadowed by what comes after it, which is the second thing, which is the second covenant. But more specifically to the point of the Logos and its relationship to Jesus, if the Logos was the pre-incarnate Jesus and the same person as Jesus, just without a physical body, then the pre-incarnate Jesus would have been the mediator of the Old Testament, because in that theology, the angel or the person, I should say, that talks to Moses on the mountain is the pre-incarnate Jesus, so he would have been the mediator of both covenants. But that's not what it says. It says that Christ has obtained a uh, covenant that is better. He mediates a better covenant. And so that only works as if it's being juxtaposed to an old covenant that he did not mediate. And so if is Christ the mediator of both covenants, the whole book of Hebrews would fall apart if that idea were true. And so Christ can only be the mediator of a new covenant if he was not, say, the angel of the Lord that had mediated the old covenant. But if it was the same person, he would mediate both covenants. But if it's not the same person, then he can mediate the second covenant without being the mediator of his, the first covenant. I actually think that's a really hard argument to get around for a Logos incarnationalist view. Okay, that was from the book of Hebrews. Can you do the same thing in the Gospel of John? I think there is a passage that says basically a very similar idea. This is from John 10, 30, 38. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, which I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of God, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. First off, this is another excellent demonstration of the theme of misunderstanding. Jesus says something spiritual. I and the Father are one. He's talking about, I would say, a spiritual and cooperative unity between Jesus and the Father, not some ontological consubstantial unity, the way a Trinitarian might understand it. The Jews misunderstand what he's saying and say, you are blaspheming. I know so many people that are like, you can tell that Jesus is God because in the Gospel of John, he claims to be God, and then the Jews understand what he's saying and then accuse him of blasphemy. That's how you know that Jesus claimed to be God. That is so opposite backwards of the way the Gospel of John works. If you are agreeing with the Jews, then you are misunderstanding Jesus. If you are disagreeing with the Jews, then you're on the right track. So when Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one, the Jews misunderstand him to say, you make yourself God. That is the wrong interpretation of what Jesus is saying. Or that, and that, anyway, I already explained myself. So Jesus tries to correct them by when they understand him to be claiming to be God. Jesus then explains, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. And here Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 82, to say that human beings in the Old Testament can be called gods. And so Jesus then says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came. And so who's the word of God? I would say the word of God is the spirit of prophecy that is speaking to these people in the Old Testament who get called gods, Then, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Jesus here specifically contrasts the word of God and him who is consecrated and sent into the world, which is Jesus himself. In an incarnationalist logos view, the word of God and the one consecrated and sent into the world are one and the same, but in this passage, they're distinguished. And so I think this is a clear instance of seeing that the word of God who comes to people in the Old Testament is not the pre-incarnate Jesus and that Jesus is someone else. Now, Jesus has the word now within him. And it is and another thing that's really important in the Gospel of John is when Jesus is trying to verify that he has been authorized and sent by God to do all the things that he's doing and saying, he always points to works. And I think that this, again, shows that the word is a, an empowerment from God within Jesus, and that you can tell that the words that he's saying are true because he is empowered by God, and the works reveal this empowered relationship that proves that Jesus is an authorized messenger and servant and revealer of God. So anyway, I think that those two passages really reveal that the Logos and Jesus aren't one-to-one in a personal identity sense, or else the pre-incarnate Jesus would have to be that person in the Old Testament, but that doesn't make sense for the reasons I've explained. But rather, the Logos is in Jesus in a special way. And so one might say, so then how in the world can the prologue use the word Logos to just mean Jesus? And I think, like John Baer explained, it's a title for the human Jesus because he is empowered and indwelt by the word. So you can call him the word. And you might say, well, why doesn't it use spirit, um, pneuma, 
or wisdom like it does in the Old Testament. Well, spirit is feminine, Numa is feminine, and um, Sophia, wisdom, is also feminine. I think one of the reasons why the Gospel of John uses logos in the prologue is so that the pronouns match up, because it's also true that Jesus isn't just called logos in the, in the prologue. He's called logos, he's called life, he's called light, and I think he, he's called life more than he is called logos. And so I think that it, that's a clue that logos, life, light, these are symbolic titles to reference Jesus. And you can call Jesus the logos, just as he's called in that passage in Revelation that Father John Bear meant, but it's a title and shouldn't be confused for a one-to-one -one identity sense of the word. All right. Okay, so I've covered the word beginning and I've covered the word word or logos, and now I'm going to cover the word with. I'm spending way more time on verse one than I will on the rest of the verses, I promise. I won't take this long to do the whole thing. But the first verse is very important. With. All right. The the, the phrase word was with God is prostantheon, which literally means towards the God. Um, and it has a direction and a movement in it, which is not apparent in the English word with, right? The English word with doesn't have direction or movement. It just has close association. In Greek, there's close association with movement in direction. Father John Baer translates it, the word was and is going towards God. And you can hear the same construction, proston theon or proston the father, in a couple verses. Here are some verses. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father. To the father, even though it's translated as to the father, could is the same construction as with, with God in uh, John 1b, you could say. So I think you could just as easily translate it like Bear does, the word is going to the father. Um, for the Father is greater than I. And then another passage, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Um, I picked these passages because they had the phrase to the Father in them to show how this Greek construction works. But I'll also say, if you think Jesus is God in the Gospel of John, why is the Father greater than Jesus? And why does Jesus call the Father, my God, and your God. Um, so I think that those are also revelatory statements about the Christology of the Gospel of John, but I won't dwell on those right now. Okay, I'm going to summarize the whole first verse now. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, I think at an earthly layer, what's going on is it's referencing God's Word is in the Genesis beginning with God, and the Word is also of God. But at the spiritual layer, which is the more important layer in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the new beginning. He's going towards God and, all right, wait a minute, Sam, if the Logos in John 1 refers directly to Jesus, and you are saying that Jesus isn't God himself, what do you do about the phrase, the word was God? And I'm going to uh, tease you and say I'll get to that at the end of this presentation. I won't get into that right now. So uh, pay attention till the end. Um, all right, moving on uh, to verses three through five. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So surely some of you are still skeptical and yet also still listening and be like, Sam, how in the world could the prologue be speaking about Jesus? It's clearly talking about how everything was made through Jesus, and that's back in the Genesis beginning. Well, let's talk about the word made for a little bit. Um, the word is egeneto, which really just means, it's, it's really just a version of the Greek word to be, and it can mean come to pass or happen or even just was. It's not specifically a word that means create or make. I actually think made is not a great translation. Um, I would translate it, all things came about through him, and apart from him, nothing came to be. That which came to be in him was life, and the life was light of men. Father John Bear's dynamic translation says, all things came to pass through him, and without him, nothing came to pass. What came to pass in him was life, and the light was the light of human beings. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the idea of new creation here. Um, so here's some passages in Paul about new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My argument is going to be that this passage, John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, is not claiming that Jesus was the one through whom the Genesis creation was made, but Jesus is the one through whom the new creation is made, the spiritual creation. And so I think that that passage in Paul is, you know, very clear. Um, all who are in Christ, and that phrase in Christ is the same as all, all things were made in him, through him could also be in him. Um, all things were made through Christ. In Christ, everyone is a new creation. For And then Galatians 6.15 says something very similar. For neither a circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, right? This new creation of Jesus is um, this, uh, um, this thing that transcends uh, circumcision and uncircumcision, right? This is Ephesians 2.10 through 15. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." So when is this new man created in Christ Jesus? Not at the beginning of time, but by his crucifixion. In his blood, we are created as one new man, making the two previous men, right, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, they get united into this new kind of humanity, this new people group that is born spiritually through Jesus's blood and baptism and the birth of the Holy Spirit. So there is this idea, very clear in Paul, that there is a new creation that comes to be through Christ Jesus and is the spiritual birth of new persons within us and this new people group that unite that has the ability to unite circumcision and uncircumcision. All right, here's another passage from Paul. I 
I honestly think 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important chapters in the whole New Testament, and that its connections to John 1, I think, are very underrated. Anyway, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, 44 through 47. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So I'll say here, the word natural is from the Greek word psyche or psychicon, which literally means soul. Like our English word psychology or psyche comes from this Greek word, and it's the Greek word for soul. And then the word spiritual is pneumaticon, which is from the word pneuma, right? Spiritual or breath. So it's just an adjective form of pneuma, and it means spiritual or pneumatic. So what Paul is doing here is he's contrasting our current bodies, which are psychical or earthly or natural, as the ESV translates it, with our spiritual body, which is our resurrected body, which is yet to come. And what's interesting is that the first example of a soulful being is Adam, and the first example of a spiritual being is Jesus. So I think this is another clear argument that Jesus isn't the one who creates Adam. Jesus creates the new creation. The first example of the old creation was Adam. The first example through whom the new creation comes is Jesus. And there's this contrast between natural and spiritual or psychical and, and pneumatical. And I think that, again, this passage is also another really good demonstration of how the typology thing works, right? Adam is a type of Jesus. Adam comes before Jesus. Adam is the first one. Jesus is the second one. The first one is of the earth or of the dust, and the second one is from heaven. It doesn't mean that Jesus originates from heaven. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that this new spiritual thing is heavenly. I think that's really a better way to understand it. All right, so that's all well and good, Sam, but that's in Paul. How can we show something similar in the book of John or the gospel of John? All right, well, here are some quotes. Uh, John 3, 5 through 7. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again, right? I already quoted this passage talking about the theme of misunderstanding. I think this is very, very similar to what Paul is saying, right? There's a fleshly birth, or what Paul called a soulful birth, but then there's also a spiritual birth. And it's the same word. Spirit is the same word that spirit that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is explaining the same here, that same thing here that Paul is explaining in 1 Corinthians 15. This new creation, this new birth, which comes through the Spirit and really through the work of Jesus in the gospel. Um, and then I'll also quote the prologue. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but um, that's okay. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Right? This is this different kind of birth. There's an old kind of birth that is of the will of men and of flesh and of blood, but there's the second kind of birth that is of the will of God, and this is this new birth, this spiritual rebirth that happens both when we receive the Holy Spirit, but is in its fullness in the resurrection, the everlasting life that comes through Jesus. And um, this passage, the, the next one I'm going to quote, it's not from the Gospel of John, it's from the first epistle of John, chapter 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. 
And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So that at this at this return of Jesus, we, the children of God, right, the people who are born spiritually again or from above, the children of God, who are the people, the new people of God made in and through Jesus, will become like Jesus is now when he appears. In other words, I think that's the exact same thing that Paul's trying to say with spiritual bodies, that Jesus has the spiritual body um, now. He has not yet returned, but when he returns, we shall be like him in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says. I think that so there are so many scholars that seem to think that Paul and John are very different from each other. I just like cannot disagree more. I think that Paul and John are so hand in glove with each other and they so reinforce each other with different language, but to describe the very, very similar ideas that I think reading them in concert is so much more illuminating than trying to figure out how they might be different from each other. Vocabulary difference is fine, but theological similarity is amazing and profound. Um, all right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about light, because that's also in this passage. So God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So I do think clearly that this passage that's calling Jesus the light is referencing this Genesis idea of light in the beginning and this contrast between light and darkness, right? The Gospel of John makes a lot of this contrast between light and darkness, but it's not just this cosmic light and darkness that was back in the creation that separates day from night, but in the Gospel of John, light and darkness is the difference between belief and misunderstanding or not non-belief or believing in Jesus and being not and being a person who doesn't believe in Jesus. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of this world, right? So I think now zooming back to this passage from John 1, from the prologue verses 3 through 5, all things came about through him and apart from him, nothing came to be. This is both a reference to how in the Old Testament, God created everything through his logos, but it's also a reference to the new creation in Jesus. All things come about through Jesus, and apart from Jesus, the human being, this new creation, nothing comes to be. And this is another theme in the Gospel of John is this exclusivism, that there's no one apart from Jesus, or there's nothing that can be found that needs to be found outside of Jesus, that Jesus has all of it in himself. And apart from Jesus, that you you know you won't be born again. Uh, so I think that exclusivism uh, and the uniqueness of Jesus is also a theme here in the prologue. Um, and so I think that the first verse, people are like, "Oh man, it has to be talking about the Genesis beginning." But I think no. I think it's talking primarily in a spiritual sense about this new beginning, this new creation, this new coming to be through Jesus. And I think that the next verses explain it very clearly. That which came to be in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So which life is he talking about? If he's if the Gospel of John here is primarily and only exclusively talking about the Genesis creation, then why is it talking about the life that is created through Jesus, which is, I think, this new life in the New Testament? And the life is the light of men, right? That passage that I quoted, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is talking about people following him now in the gospel, having the light of life. 
So if this light of men is the life is the light of men, that's a New Testament reference. And so therefore, that phrase, all things came to be through him and apart from him, nothing came to be, also has to have a New Testament reference in order to make any sequential sense. I am agreeing that there's an Old Testament illusion, right? That's that Old Testament earthly spiritual layer that typologically helps us understand the New Testament layer. But there needs to be a New Testament layer in order for this passage to make sense. All right, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome or comprehended it, right? That's another one of those words that has a double meaning. Uh, in the Old Testament, the light shines into the darkness, separates the day from night. That's the light not being overcome by darkness. But in this New Testament time, Jesus is the light of the world and he shines into the darkness, right? Which is sort of like the people of Israel were in a state of darkness. And, you know, you can think of Isaiah, you know, the people, the darkness has seen a great light, like that sort of thing. And the people that Jesus talks to mostly do not understand what he's saying. Okay, so, oops, this should be one through five. And I should have clicked that one earlier, right? The spiritual level, it's the new creation of eternal life. Earthly level, old creation of soulful life through God's breath and literal light. Okay, so I think I got that passage down. So this next passage is the witness of John the Baptist. So if verse... Five, if verses three through five, if you're arguing that those are only about the Old Testament and God creating everything through the pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament, why is verse six about John the Baptist? All right, so there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So if the light that John the Baptist bears witness to is Jesus in the flesh in the New Testament, because John the Baptist isn't bearing witness about God creating light in the book of Genesis, so if the light that Jesus uh, that John the Baptist bears witness to is the light that shines in the darkness, and that this light is the life which is in him, and if all things are made through him, then he, the same him, is in the beginning, and this same he, who is the light and the life and the him which all things came through, and the he which is in the beginning, is the word, then this beginning has to be a beginning that John the Baptist is bearing witness to, or else the sentence doesn't make sense. So how can John the Baptist bear witness to the word in the beginning? Because John the Baptist wasn't bearing witness to that. John the Baptist is bearing witness to the human life of Jesus. So therefore, the beginning has to be the beginning that John the Baptist bears witness to. And John the Baptist even initiates, in some sense, through his baptism of Jesus, this new beginning. That's what John the Baptist is bearing witness to, is the new beginning. John the Baptist didn't bear witness to the old beginning. And that's why I think that I think this argument is basically a smackdown argument for anyone who thinks that this the passage one through five is exclusively about the Old Testament, because then John the Baptist couldn't fit into this sequence the way that it does. Light points to life versus him versus him versus the word and the beginning. All those things have to have a shared reference in order for verses six through eight to make sense. And that reference has to be something that's happening during John the Baptist's lifetime. All right, moving on. Verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made. And, that, and the word made there is also that same Greek word I already talked about, which just means was or came to be. 
The world was through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what's going on here? So let's talk about the word world a little bit. The world, the word world in the Gospel of John is the word cosmos. And I don't think, I, I think most English speakers, when they hear the word cosmos, just think of the word universe. But the word cosmos in Greek, it literally means adornment or arrangement or something like decoration. Um, and you can see this in English in the word cosmetics. Like when you go to the cosmetics section of a department store, you're going to get makeup, right? It's a decoration or an adornment on your face. That's why it's called cosmetics. And the word cosmopolitan in English also comes from the Greek word cosmos. Because I think in Greek, like the Greek word started meaning decoration or adornment or something that you make that's pretty. And then that sort of means that like God's beautiful creation or God's beautiful decoration on top of the world is also something that you can call the word cosmos. And then it sort of like jumps even bigger to be like all of the world is God's like decoration or adornment or something like that. And so that that's why how the word cosmos can mean both decoration and a city or like civilization um, and also the universe as a whole. And in the Gospel of John, the word world ha can have positive connotations. God so loved the world. It can all have neutral negative, neutral connotations and it can be, be very negative in its connotation. I have overcome the world, right? Be in the world, but not of the world, right? The world can mean a very negative thing in the Gospel of John sometimes. So in, in the Gospel of John, the word cosmos sometimes means civilization or mankind, a people group. Satan's kingdom is another meaning. The attention of the masses, right? The world is looking at something that's sort of the collective attention and consciousness of civilization. It can mean like on the scene, or sometimes it means the universe below the stars. Um, when, when John is saying that the world is bad, he's not saying that the heavens are bad, right? It's the world underneath heaven. That, that is what he sometimes means by cosmos. So um, I'll say, so I think basically, just to give my interpretation of John 9, or John 10, um, he was in the world and the world was made or came to be through him, yet the world did not know him. This is an Old Testament, you know, double-step thing. It's talking about how God made the world and the people of Israel through his word in the ways I've already explained. But it also means that Jesus was like in Jerusalem and the Jewish realm of civilizational consciousness. And though the new people of God come to be through him, these Jewish people did not know him or did not understand him or recognize who he was. And the, so it's like the people of God didn't know him, but the people of God in the spiritual sense come to be through him. And if that sounds strange, all right, I think the next phrase, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, also helps illuminate what's going on. So I think to help illuminate this, I'm going to read Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
So there's this idea that the word of God came to people in the Old Testament, and that's very similar to what Jesus was saying in John chapter 10. And some people didn't receive it, right? There were people who were punished by their transgressions against the word of God in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews here says that the message from the Old Testament was delivered by angels, and he contrasts that by the message that was delivered by Jesus, another example of how the word that came to the people in the Old Testament was not the pre-incarnate Jesus, it was this, you know, message delivered by angels, as the book of Hebrews calls it, in contrast to the message delivered recently by God, or by, I should say, <laughs> Freudian slip, perhaps, by Jesus, which God attests to by doing signs and wonders and miracles through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. That's how he attests to it. And through miracles that have been done by people after Jesus, also attesting to the, the new message that was received. All right, so looking at verses 9 through 13 as a whole, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made or came to be through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But who all, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not, not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So I've already quoted that last verse. What I think is going on, is the first couple verses have a double-layered meaning, like I've already explained, that in some sense in the Old Testament, God made the world through his word, but in a New Testament way, God makes the world, the new people of God through Jesus. And I think that what happens is, is that the gospel, the prologue of John does this multiple times, where there's a passage that has a double meaning, and then John will explain the spiritual layer of the meaning. It's very similar to how when Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days, right? That was a double-layered meaning statement. The Jews didn't understand it. But then the narrator explains the spiritual meaning of what's going on. This is another example where the narrator, the author of the gospel, explains the spiritual meaning of what he had just said, lest you be confused. So to anyone who's still skeptical that he was in the world and the world came to be through him, yet the world did not know him, could somehow refer to something that had happened in Jesus's own lifetime. I think that this is exactly what John explains when he's explaining what he had just said. To those who received him, who believed in his name. Okay, so who are the people believing in his name? Whose name is this? This is Jesus's name. This is people believing in Jesus. This isn't like some Old Testament believing in God. This is believing in Jesus's name. He gave the right to become children of God. And again, if you still think this is about the Old Testament, this next phrase is impossible to reconcile with it being referring to the Old Testament. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the contrast between how God made people in the Old Covenant through physical birth, through Abraham. You know, there if you to be Abraham, a child of Abraham and therefore a child of God, you had to be born in this lineage of the will of man and of blood. But there's this new form of being a child of God, which I've already referenced multiple times with multiple scriptural citations, that happens not of the will of man, but of the will of God. And so there, he's talking about this new people of God that's getting made. And that's his explanation for what he just said. So if you're skeptical that that phrase can refer to the human Jesus, then tell me how that phrase, which explains that phrase, in other words, verses 12 and 13, how could verses 12 and 13 only refer to the Old Testament if it's contrasting itself with the Old Testament? Um, that would be my explanation. All right. 
verse 14. Where did, all right, uh, sorry about that. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. And again, the word became there is that same word that's was or came as or came to be flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of as the as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. All right. So I think the question is, is when is this word supposed to become flesh? And is the word become even really the right translation? So traditionally, this is understood as the birth or conception in Mary of Jesus. And in fact, actually, a lot of Unitarians agree with that, right? That old creation style of interpretation that biblical Unitarians sometimes do actually agrees with the word becoming flesh as referring to Jesus's birth most of the time. Um, Dr. Amberger Peterson, who I quoted, he says that the word became flesh at Jesus's baptism, which is the descent of the spirit logos into the human Jesus. Father John Bear, when he reads the word become flesh, because he also agrees that the prologue of John is mostly talking about Jesus's life, he sees it as a Eucharistic or Paschal reference. In other words, it's it's sort of, uh, transubstantiation isn't the right word, but you understand why I'm saying that in the Eucharist, when the bread becomes the flesh of Jesus, that that's what the word becomes flesh is pointing to. And he points out how the word flesh is used in John 6 to refer to Jesus's flesh in the Eucharist, when Jesus is giving that confusing bread of life discourse, which is also another excellent uh, example of the theme of misunderstanding. Um, others will say, I've heard other examples of saying it's the resurrection in connection with Jesus's glory, or maybe it's the crucifixion. Um, so I, I am going to tentatively propose an alternative idea of what the word became or the word was flesh might mean. And so I'm going to use 1 John 4, 1 through 3 to explain what I mean. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So I think that the author of the Gospel of John was dealing with um, Gnostic or Docetic tendencies in early Christianity that wanted to see Jesus as a non-fleshly messenger like some sort of angel or almost some sort of hologram or like force ghost kind of Jesus where he he wasn't flesh because he was just a messenger from the heavenly realm. I think that the author of the Gospel of John and the Epistle of 1 John is having to wrestle with this theological idea and he is condemning it by saying that any spirit that does not confess that Christ Jesus came in the flesh is a false spirit. And I think what I think that what verse 14 might mean here is that it's really doing the same thing, that lest anyone misunderstand somehow that he has been talking about a flesh and blood human being, he's saying, and the word was flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It's both emphasizing Jesus's fleshliness and that the author of the gospel is an eyewitness of this, that he has touched and felt Jesus. So anyone who might say that Jesus wasn't a flesh and blood human being, that the Logos wasn't a flesh and blood human being, he's saying, we touched him, we saw him, we beheld his glory. He was flesh and he dwelt among us. I think that's really what's going on here, is that the author of the Gospel of John is making an anti-docetic polemic in verse 14. 
And he's not talking about the transition of some second person of the disembodied Trinity into an incarnated, you know, dual natured something or another in the Virgin Mary. I think that he's really just trying to emphasize the fleshly nature of Jesus in contrast to a false theology that he's having to confront in his own time. All right, moving on to verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. All right, I think that there are two things going on here. Let's see here. Um, I think that in contrast to people who misunderstand Jesus, the uh, John the Baptist is someone who correctly understands Jesus. And in fact, the author of the Gospel of John uses John the Baptist as an ally to help support his beliefs about Jesus, because many people believed that um, John the Baptist was important. And in fact, I, I often think that the author of the Gospel of John is having to confront people who think that John the Baptist is too important, and some people who might have thought he was the Messiah. And so that John is trying to put John the Baptist in his proper place as a witness, as a truthful, authoritative witness who understand, understood and declared Jesus's real identity, but not as the Messiah himself. And so what's John the Baptist saying here? He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So I think what he's saying is that in an earthly sense, John is older than Jesus. And you have to understand in this culture and in this time, to be older than someone was to be above them in the hierarchy. And to try and act more important than someone who is older than you was very disrespectful and disobedient. And so to claim that Jesus was older, or to claim that Jesus is more important than John the Baptist when John the Baptist is older than him and was doing his ministry first would be a um, disrespectful usurpation in some eyes. So what John is saying is that in a earthly sense, John, Jesus is after John the Baptist, right? And I have this picture of, um, of uh, Elizabeth, John's mother, seeing the Virgin Mary and that um, the baby within her baby, John the Baptist, jumps for joy when he sees uh, baby Jesus inside Mary, right? But um, John the Baptist was conceived first, so he's a little bit older than his cousin Jesus. So in an earthly sense, John is older than Jesus, and John's ministry starts before Jesus's ministry. But in a heavenly new creation sense, which is how themes of misunderstanding, or in this case, themes of understanding work, Jesus is older than John. So are you saying that Jesus preexisted John? Well, not in a earthly sense, but in a new creation, heavenly sense, in that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. I think there's another passage that is saying something very similar. Um, so this is another very famous passage that lots of people are aware of. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Or I'm not going to get into it, but really the Greek here is better. I am he, not I am. It's not God's name. It's a declaration of self-identity, not a declaration of God's identity. That's for a different video. But anyway, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is a perfect example of a theme of misunderstanding. Jesus speaks at a spiritual level. In other words, that Abraham prophetically in the future saw Jesus. 
Abraham was given a spiritual heavenly revelation of the coming Messiah. I'm not saying it happened exactly when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. This picture gets the idea across that in some sense, Abraham had a prophetic revelation of Jesus in the future, and it made Abraham glad. He saw the future vision of Jesus. He saw it and was glad. That's what Jesus is saying at a spiritual level. So in some sense, earthly Abraham is seen into this new future, the new creation future of Jesus. But the Jews misunderstand him. You are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Again, they're taking him literally. They're misunderstanding what he's saying. Then Jesus tries to correct them. He doubles down again at the spiritual level. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am he. Right, And he's not speaking at an earthly level again of preceding Abraham in earthly old creation time. He precedes Abraham. And another way of translating, I'm not going to argue this right now, it's a big long Greek conversation, but it could, it, a way to translate that is before Abraham is, is uh, before Abraham comes to be, before Abraham is ising, I am he. So he's talking about how Jesus, Jesus is talking about how he precedes Abraham at the spiritual level, at the new creation level, in terms of the new people of God that come to be through Jesus and his resurrection, his new life. Jesus is born from above before Abraham gets born from above, because Jesus gets baptized with the Holy Spirit and is the firstborn from the dead, and Abraham comes from the dead after Jesus. So in the spiritual logic of the new king of the new kingdom and the new creation, Jesus comes to be before Abraham, even though at this old level that the Jews are misunderstanding him as talking about, Abraham is older than Jesus. So let's see here. Just to emphasize this idea that Jesus is the beginning, but he's the beginning of the new creation, here are two passages. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, right? Jesus is describing himself as the words of the amen. That's another time I could say where Jesus is being called God, or sorry, he's being called the logos of God in a titular or a title sense. He, Jesus is a faithful and true witness of God. He is the beginning of God's creation. He's not the beginning of God's old creation. He's the beginning of God's new creation. Colossians 1.18, he says the very similar thing, or this is Paul saying a very similar thing. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then everything he might be preeminent. So in what sense is Jesus preeminent? He is the preeminent one in the sense that he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the first one to enter into the new beginning. He is the beginning by being the firstborn from the dead. This is a logic that I think a lot of people are resistant to really try and understand, but the new creation is more important to Paul than the old creation. The new creation is more important to the Gospel of John than the old creation. That's how this typology thing works. The thing that replaces the first thing is of greater glory and greater importance and greater focus and attention, and it replaces the old thing and supersedes it in glory. So when you're talking about creation, once you've seen the new creation through Jesus, the old creation isn't like, I think people default to thinking that the word creation must refer to the old creation, just because that's how we typically think. But in this logic, creation more rightly refers to the new creation. And so Jesus is preeminent because he's the firstborn from the dead. So he is preeminent over Abraham and preeminent over John the Baptist because he is the firstborn from the dead and the beginning of God's new creation. All right. So 
John 1, 16 through 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here, I really love this passage too, because I feel like it finally explains the two layers. I've been arguing that there's two, been two layers going on this whole time. And I hear, I feel like here finally in this verse, in verse 17, the author of the Gospel of John reveals that there are two layers that he's been talking about. For the law was given through Moses, first layer, Old Testament layer. Grace and truth, new layer, come through Jesus Christ. And so the contrast is between what comes through Moses and what comes through Jesus. What came through Moses, the law was good. What comes through Jesus, grace and truth is better. So in the same way that it, there's this beginning, this primordial beginning where God hovers over the chaos, so is there's this new beginning in Jesus. As there's this time in the Old Testament where God speaks with his logos, let there be light. So in the New Testament, there is this new light, which is the logos, which is the human being, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And the word comes to its own and its own rejected, like the golden calf, you know, God's word came to Moses and the people, his own people, rejected him and built the golden calf. That's just one example of disobedience in the Old Testament. So the people of God in the New Testament often rejected him and didn't listen to him. But to who, those who did listen to him, who did receive him, who do believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, not children of God the way that Abraham had children of God through you know physical birth, but through this new birth, which is from above, from God. And the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And this all culminates with Jesus's glorification on his crucifixion and resurrection. So I think that this is really getting to the end here, although there's still one more really important verse that I should talk about. So this is the ESV translation. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, so a word that we need to talk about, monogenes, or monogenes, or there's a couple different ways to pronounce it. Mono means only in Greek. Genes means born or begotten, or does it mean one of a kind or genus? There's a big argument in the scholarly literature right now about whether monogenes means only begotten or whether it means one of a kind or basically unique. You'll notice that the ESV is taking what I would say is a very creative translation of monogenes. No one has ever seen God. The monogenes God, in other words, so it's saying only is a translation of monogenes. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I think this is a very bad translation. I think it's deliberately a trying to smooth Trinitarian edges around a, a verse that should discomfort Trinitarians. I think that's exactly what it's doing. So let's look at other Greek words, specifically Greek names that end in genes. Eugenes, which is the um, Greek uh, source of our English name Eugene, mean well-born. You in Greek means good or well, so eugenes means well-born. Origenes, which is actually the word of origin, the church father, it, it means born of Horus, Horus the Egyptian god. Hermogenes or homogenes means born of Hermes. Aristogenes means born of the upper class or born of the aristocracy. Theogenes means born of a god. And hesychogenes means 
born of quiet or peacefully born. It's a name that would be get given to babies whose mothers had a relatively easy and peaceful labor delivering them. So if Hesychogenes refers to how a kid could be go through the process of labor in their mother peacefully, then genes must mean born from. So if all of these names have the connotation of born of or born from, then what does monogenes mean? I think it just obviously means only born or only begotten. If hesychogenes can refer to birth, then monogenes also refers to birth. Or uh, Anyway, I think that's relatively clear. So no one has ever seen God, the only begotten. Okay, now there's another question about John 1, 18. It could either, there are some manuscripts, and this isn't a translation issue. Um, this is a manuscript issue. Some manuscripts say the only begotten God, and some manuscripts say the be only begotten Son. And this is there could be a whole presentation about, <coughs> excuse me, about just this verse. But only begotten God, it does show up in the earliest manuscripts. But the manuscripts that have only begotten God are basically all confined to Alexandria. And there's a, um, there's a rule of thumb that translators sometimes use when there's a manuscript discrepancy that you should go with the more difficult reading because a scribe on, in this logic is more likely to change or alter a difficult reading into an easier reading than an easier reading into a difficult reading because the human mind sometimes does that. And so they argue that only begotten God is a more difficult reading. But in uh, Only Begotten Son's Calm, it is pretty near, the manuscripts that say Only Begotten Son are pretty close in time to the earlier manuscripts that say Only Begotten God. And it's also interesting that there's a much wider geographic distribution, which just because um, we don't have manuscripts earlier that say that, if it's already showing up in different places, that suggests that the tradition that says Only Begotten Son is actually older because it would have taken more time to spread further. And I would say that only begotten son is a phrase that uh, John uses very often. We, there are at least six or seven other references to an only begotten son in the Gospel of John. So wouldn't it just make sense if he was also using a phrase that he used in other places in, only, in verse 18? It would be very unusual if he was using a new phrase once off in verse 118. And I also will dispute the idea that this is a more difficult reading because in Alexandria, there are a lot of Logos incarnationalists and that the idea that the Logos was a begotten God was exactly what they believed. So in other words, I could argue that instead of only begotten God being a more difficult reading, it actually fit the Alexandrian theology better and was an easier reading. So I don't think the idea that it's a more difficult reading stands up very well. So therefore, I think that John 1, 18, and I should also say that that last word, explained, is it's actually a pretty cool word. It's exegosito, which is the, where the English word exegesis or exegete comes from. It means to explain, interpret, make known, or cause others to understand. So I think John 1, 18 should say, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is at the Father's bosom. He has explained or exegeted him. And I think this is a really difficult verse for Trinitarians because if Jesus is supposed to be God, then how is it that no one has ever seen God and that this begotten Son is contrasted with God? If God is invisible, but this begotten Son is visible, it suggests that this begotten Son is not the invisible God. So I think that Trinitarians have been using loopholes that they can find or invent 
in manuscript traditions or in the word monogenes to try and smooth this verse over for their Trinitarian readership. And I think that's not very responsible. All right. So, Sam, you promised that you would get to the phrase, and the word was God. You've seemingly, in, especially in what I just said about John 1.18, trying to deny the idea that Jesus is God. But if you say that the word, the logos, refers to Jesus, then how do you handle John 1c, where it says, and the word was God? I know that some people have interpreted this passage as, and what God, <clears throat> excuse me here, one second, I'm going to. All right, some people have interpreted this phrase as what God was, the word was, or origin, he even interprets this phrase, and the word was divine. Some other people, Jehovah's Witnesses, interpreted the word was a God. All of those are technically allowable in Greek, but I actually think that, and the word was God, probably is actually the best English translation. Okay, Sam, so how do you make sense of that theologically? All right. I'm going to talk a little bit about Jesus's unity with God in the Gospel of John. So this is John 10.30. This is actually a passage I already referenced. I and the Father are one. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus here is making a strong identity with the Father, and of course the Jews misunderstood him and tried to stone him for saying that. But what he's saying I think is relatively clear, that there is a unity of action and cooperation between God and Jesus, such that God is acting through Jesus, and we know that God is acting through Jesus because we see the works, and the works are testimony to the Father being in Jesus. And I think this is the same thing as saying that the Spirit was in Jesus without measure. I think that's another way of saying that the Father is in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is so fully in Jesus that the Father is in Jesus. And again, there... There's no second person of the Trinity in Jesus. There's no second person of the Trinity laid out in the Gospel of John. It's the Father, the first person of the Trinity, so-called, who is the one that's in Jesus. Not that Jesus is just some flesh puppet being animated by the Father, but that Jesus is a human being empowered and indwelt by the Father with the Spirit inside him. And Jesus being in the Father is sort of like, it means a little bit the opposite but parallel thing that Jesus is inside, like the the phrase in <clears throat> the phrase in Christ is means like you believe in Jesus and that you trust in Jesus. So Jesus being in the Father is that same version of the word in. All right, I'll talk about another passage. So Thomas says to Jesus, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? These words I say to you, and I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So this is also a, another example of the theme of misunderstanding. It's not just like um, evil Jewish people who misunderstand Jesus. Sometimes his own disciples misunderstand Jesus. But I think Jesus is saying something hard to explain here, that seeing Jesus is like seeing the Father. It's not the same thing as seeing the Father, because the Gospel of John will repeat extensively <clears throat> that God... Sorry, excuse me, my voice is getting a little hoarse from talking for so long. But anyway, what Jesus is saying is that seeing Jesus is like seeing the Father, not because he is the Father. The Father is inherently invisible, but Jesus makes him visible through his self, through his actions, through his words, through his deeds. And this is like some sort of cooperative, active unity where the works are what reveals the Father, the words are what reveal the Father, because the works and the words come through Jesus, but are sourced in the Father. And I think it's very interesting when Jesus, or when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, to Jesus after he's been resurrected, I do not think that Thomas is here referring to Jesus directly in a one-to-one -one identity sense as his God. What I think Thomas is doing is he is finally properly understanding, as opposed to misunderstanding, what he misunderstood in this passage. Thomas and Philip are trying to see the Father, trying to know the Father. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We are one, all these sorts of things. That Jesus and God have a unity, not of identity or not of essence or consubstantiality, but of participation and of activity and of sort of revelatory, um, uh, I don't know, revelatory means of accessing and knowing God. It's like a much soft, softer and gentler but I think even more profound sense of what it would mean to call Jesus God. It, it's, it's very delicate, but I think that once you see it in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the means of revelation and activity and source and function through which God is acting. And Jesus being a perfect revealer of this can be called God because he is this portal messenger revelatory thing of God. Um, like, I don't know, an example that I've heard that I think is a good way to explain this is like, Jesus is some perfectly clean mirror where like God comes down and because Jesus is a mirror that is so clean, it like reflects God perfectly to the people looking at him. In some sense, you're looking at a mirror, but in some sense, you're looking at God. And some, you could say the same thing about a really detailed picture. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you have seen him, you have seen the Father. He, you can't see God directly, but you can see God indirectly by seeing Jesus. And when you call Jesus God, you're calling him God indirectly, but you're calling God the Father God through and in Jesus. And I think that's what Thomas finally gets. And that's sort of like the climax of the gospel at the end, when Thomas is clicking in this spiritual and earthly thing fusing such that God the Father is in and revealed through the human being, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And so I would say, what does the last verse of Jesus mean, or what does the, the first verse of the prologue mean? 
the word was with God and the word was God. That's what I think it's trying to say. All right. Here's another passage that I think is very interesting to, for those who think that Jesus's unity with God is somehow qualitatively different than our unity with God. So this is in the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent them. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So this unity that Jesus has with the Father is something that he prays his disciples will have with each other and with Jesus and with the Father. So this uniqueness that Jesus has with God now is something that is to be shared and expanded upon through Jesus into the disciples. Just as the Father is in Jesus, so then Jesus is in his disciples, so that the Father is in the disciples through Jesus in the disciples. The, God, the glory that, Jesus, that God gives to Jesus, then Jesus gives to his disciples. The love that God has for Jesus then gets transmitted to his disciples. So all of this unity and cooperation that Jesus has with God is something that gets extended to all of Jesus's followers. So I would say that it can't be some special, unique divinity that Jesus is having with God or his divine nature, or however you would want to put it, or else this prayer doesn't make any sense. What Jesus has, the divinity you could say that he has from God, is something that gets extended and shared with his disciples, because that's exactly what Jesus is praying for in this high priestly prayer right before his crucifixion. All right, so... In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, Old Testament and New Testament, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This delicate participative sense is what I mean when I'm saying that it's calling the Word God with the Word being a title for Jesus. Jesus is God's activity and locus and revelatory focal point, but it isn't an identity statement. All right. I hope that's clear enough. I know that I'll get a lot of questions about that, but I've articulated myself at the end of two hours as best as I can for now. And no one has ever seen God, the only begotten son who is at the father's bosom. He exegetes him. I think these two verses are seeing something very similar. In the same way that Jesus exegetes God, who is otherwise invisible, that's the sense in which Jesus is God. He's the source of Jesus's exegete. All right. I'm going to go through this whole prologue quickly at a high-level view. I've been doing it at like a super zoomed-in focused view. This is going to be high-level, fast, 30,000-foot view so that people can get the whole context of what I'm saying. All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and apart through him, nothing came to be. All right. This is a double-layered statement. The double-layered statement is speaking both about the Old Testament and about the New Testament at the same time through typological, logical relation. So the Old Testament helps us understand the true meaning, which is the New Testament meaning located in Jesus. 
And then there's a explanation statement where the author of the prologue is helping us understand the previous three verses. That which came to be in him was life, and this life was the light of men, right? So what does it mean that everything came about through Jesus? It means that the eternal life, which is this new creation life that endures forever, it comes to be through Jesus, and it's the light of men. All right, next paragraph. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a double-layered statement. It's referring to light being made in Genesis, but it's mainly referring to, in a spiritual sense, how Jesus is the light of the world. And then we get a spiritual explanation of the double-layered statement again. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. All right, there's another explanation statement and a contextualization statement to let us know that we're talking about something that's happening during Jesus' own lifetime, or else John the Baptist would be irrelevant. The light shining in the darkness is the life of Jesus. All right, he was in the world, the world came to be through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Double-layered statement again. It's referring to just as how God created the world through his word, and how the word came to the people of God, and the people of God did not receive it in the Old Testament. That's a foretype, a foreshadow of how in Jesus he comes to his own people, even though the people of God in this new birth sense are created through Jesus, this world still is not receiving him, just as the same way it didn't receive the Logos in the Old Testament, just as the Logos came to his own people and the old people did not receive him, Jesus comes to his own people, the Jewish people, and the Jewish people didn't receive him. But all who did receive him, again, a clue that we're actually talking about Jesus primarily, not the Logos in the Old Testament primarily, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right. And then this next paragraph, I don't think it's a double-layered statement. It's more just like an, exposi an exposition of the gospel rather than a double-layered statement. And the word was flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten Son from the Father, full grace and truth. Again, I just think he's e emphasizing and iterating that the word was a flesh and blood human being, and John himself, the author, is an eyewitness to this. And that anyone who's saying that the word wasn't a flesh and blood human being, but was some sort of forced ghost, doesn't know what they're talking about because John witnessed his glory. And he's not alone. We, there are other people who have seen his glory too. John bore witness of him, right? He's again calling in more witnesses besides himself and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, there's that double layered meaning in a fleshly sense. John the Baptist is older than Jesus in a spiritual new creation sense. Jesus is older than John the Baptist. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That includes John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't receive something by himself. John the Baptist even receives grace through Jesus. That's another way that you can understand that. For the law was given through Moses. I will admit that there is half of one sentence that is talking about the Old Testament, and that is the law was given through Moses. That is the only sentence, I think, the only half a sentence in the whole prologue that exclusively refers to the Old Testament. Every other phrase in the whole prologue primarily refers to the life and times of Jesus in the gospel, except for that little half a sentence. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is at the Father's bosom. He exegeted him. So with that, I think I'm sure that there are people who will have questions or objections to what I said. I'm sure that this is a little bit new and confusing to some people, although some people are probably also like, yes, that makes sense. Uh, I'm excited for both reactions in the comments section. Uh, let me know what you think. And I will also say, I think the prologue of John is really amazing and profound. And I have really benefited myself from dwelling on it, not just in some sort of knowledge sense, but I do feel like seeing this way of understanding the gospel and the prologue, there's so much more to it than meets the eye that it invites reflection and invites spiritual growth and contemplation and I don't think like I've, in some sense, exhausted what it means with this explanation. I hope I've really just given you a tool to help delve even deeper into what it's trying to say, um, but to do so in a way that is enriching and enlightening so that we can see the true meaning and the true identity of Jesus and the true identity of Jesus. It means to be an end of the about the gospel the gospel of John. So uh, thank you everybody for your time and attention.